Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Sarah, Jessica Parker, Bette Midler, and the other one, as witches. It's a Hocus Pocus reference. It's a great film. Check it out, Halloween. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. Thank you very much for joining us once again on this podcast, which is nearly, we're going into next year, we'll be five years old. We've been going for five years. That's a lot of 1990s footballs. If this is the first time you've listened, where have you been? Get yourself back in the archive. Listen to all the nonsense and bonkersness of the 1990s that we've spoken about before. Because there's a lot of it. Um, there's more of it today. And then today, there's something that we've actually never spoken about before as well. I think we touched on it a few times. Um, but we're going to go quite long form, uh, certainly on the subject, not quite on some of the individuals that we may do in the future. Um, but it's a kind of... As of dinner for two, actually, it's myself and Joel Young, and we are looking back at football chairman and owners of the 1990s, um, which is a subject that when Joel first brought it up, because he's done some work for Planet Football on this subject, which check it out. Um, it's a great article he did on Alan Sugar, which we talk about as well on the show. Um, I wasn't completely sure, I'm honest, because it's kind of that part of football that we all accept. And in, I think unless you've got a general interest in that side of it, you kind of just kind of let the information go in one ear and out the other. Um, but having researched some of the guys that we're talking about today, there's some absolutely brilliantly fun stories from the 1990s. Not all legal, not all possibly fun for the clubs involved at the time, but to look back on and discuss uh, just how ridiculous some of the stories are that come out of the ownership of clubs from some of these guys in the 1990s um, is very, very fun indeed. So, yeah, stay tuned um, for that. Um, and we've also worked on some new week-to-week episodes that we're going to hopefully start uh, the start of December because um, we've been a bit sporadic in terms of episodes over recent months, just to scheduling and other other balls in the airs and things like that. Um, but yeah, we're going to do a new series within our series coming soon. So do look out for that. Um, we'll have some guests as well going on. Um, there's lots going on for 2020, which is great. I'm really happy about that. Um, it's not always easy to, to find the new things to talk about when you've done over 100 episodes, but we definitely are. And definitely there's some definitely fun things in the pipeline for our live and kick in in the new year and the remainder of this year as well. So do stay tuned for all that goodness, including an interview with Clive Allen, which I'm doing next week, which we'll definitely showcase in a future episode of the podcast. Um, but let's get into today's meet of the show. Yeah, let's talk owners and chairman of the 1990s with Mr. Joel Young himself. Um, and yeah, enjoy. Keep it 90s as always. And as I say, it uh, really helps us with all your feedback, whether it's on Twitter at AK90s, on Instagram at AK90spod. Uh, if you would rate and review the show on iTunes or however you download the show, that would be amazing um, for us. We really, really do appreciate all the love and support that you have for Alive and Kicking. Um, quick question. How would you feel about an Alive and Kicking t-shirt? Something we're possibly discussing with Keep It 90s being the kind of central theme of it. Mm, interest you? Let me know on Twitter, AK90s, if that is something that would interest you at a reasonable price if you wanted to show your love for 1990s football on a glorious looking t-shirt with some of our friends of the show helping us out on that. Anyway, let's get on with it. Here is Chairman, well, we're actually we're calling it Nine 90s Nutty Chairman. There you go. Here it is. Enjoy the show. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking on this miserable Friday afternoon. Oh no, morning? It's still morning. Yes, it's still morning. It's morning to us, but by the time it gets out there, it'll probably be evening. Exactly. And that voice you hear on the other line is one of the founding fathers of Alive and Kicking. Yeah, he was there from it's the good. very beginning. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was quite good. Um, and it's a romantic dinner for two, this uh, this episode. It's just me and Joe, which I don't think we've done for a very long time. Uh, Matthew's a busy man. He's been away in Serbia, pretending to support Man United. Um, even though he's, we know he's a secret Liverpool fan these days and hanging out with Brian McClare. Um, but Joel, you're here with us, you social media mogul, and how are you doing, sir? I'm, I'm very well, I'm very well. I'm getting there. I can do without this uh, 
this horrible weather. Yeah, it's boo. I can do without Middlesbrough Football Club. Uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah, well, it's the AK's A90s derby coming up in a couple of weeks, isn't it? It's at, yeah, is it, it's at our next place? Next Saturday. No, next Saturday at Loftus Road. Ah, okay. Mm, it's my mum's birthday, so. Ah, so you won't be going. Um, probably. Well, I, I might be in Manchester for WWE. I just, as we were discussing pre-record, <laughs> I just don't know where I'm going to be at the moment. So I could well be in Manchester that day, um, recovering from Raw and SmackDown. But yeah, but I don't know. I'm not sure if I'll be around. Raw and SmackDown and Gorilla Position. And Gorilla Position. Oh yeah, everything rolled into one. Yeah. So yeah. That'd be quite a long day. That would be a long day. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. In terms of football, yes, I'm not sure I'll make it to Loftus Road for that one. But I don't know, it could be an interesting game, that one, talking modern football for a second, because you're obviously in a slump. We've started to, people have started to find us out a little bit, if anyone saw Monday Night Football this week when Brentford took us to task. Um, but I read you're trying to get senior pros on shittier contracts and things like that. It's all a bit grim up there, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's... Uh, to, to coin it, a catchphrase. Well, I mean, we're going to be talking about chairman, obviously. Yeah. And we've got a chairman who in the 90s was particularly interested and passionate and in the noughties was particularly passionate and, and you know, interested and, and now just isn't. Yeah, I was going to... Um, it's, yeah. um, it's grim times and we've got, you know, I've, and I've said enough about the coach. Um, and it's the first time I've actively disliked a manager within, you know, I think near the end, it always tends yeah, to be, oh, course, I've had enough yeah. of this or I don't like them. But him, I just... It's it's not that it's like he's a young manager. It's not anything else. It's just that he's not a nice person, and I know that firsthand. Yeah, I can't take him seriously as a manager, and even from the outside, I just look at him and go, "Really, Jonathan yeah. Woodgate? Really?" It's a, yeah, it's still a no. Bit he's full of cliches. He yeah. puts his accent on in uh, interviews, <laughs> and this I, I tweeted out the other day, and somebody, a few people listening might have seen me say this, but I said. Like, spare me this kind of narrative that's going on with him, that he's a Borough legend. He really isn't. He's He played for us once, then he buggered off to Spurs as soon as he got a chance. Then he came back again when nobody else would have him. So he's not like Gareth Southgate. He's not like Hugo Ekiog. He's not like Nigel Pearson. He's not like Gary Pallister. He's not like Tony Mowbray. He's not, he's not in that echelon for me as a player. And as a person, he's absolute dirt worst, rock bottom and like I said, personal experience of seeing his behaviour. Uh, no, I can't talk about him. Do you think he'll last the season? Yeah, and I think we'll go down. With I've him. Said we've been going, I've yeah. said we'd go down since the third week of the season. I think we're going down. It, it's just got this inevitability about it um, that, that I can see. It looks like Sunderland. It looks like, you know, all those, like Ipswich Town. It just yeah. looks like that. It looks useless. It looks rudderless. It looks... Um, it, it just looks like there's no direction. And, and, you know, this is a team that, you know, for everybody slagging off Pulis, he, he was right what he said all season last year. is like, you know, we've got these lads playing above their level. Yeah. yeah. So the grass is always and, and it, it, it winds me up and it angers me. And, and, you know, and it's just the fact that, you know, if, if I liked the manager as a person, I would probably cut him more slack. But, um, you know, he's probably going to be in charge for three years and we'll stay in, like, League One for a couple of years. It's... Um, it's not good. And, and when you've got a, a chairman who I am incredibly grateful for, for everything he's done, and we could have easily been, you know, bust like a Berry or a or Bolton, all the troubles that they've gone through without him. Um, at the minute, it's not a good situation because he's not interested. There's no money there. He doesn't want to put any money in. Um, so what do you do? And yeah, I think we're going down. I think it's one you, you as a club and fans are probably one of the, you could actually cut him some slack, one of the few clubs you could, for what he's done for the club, Gibson, really, isn't it? But it must yeah, be, absolutely. It must yeah. be hard at this stage to think he took over what he did and now to see them. And yeah, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one for yeah, him. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, this is the thing of being a football fan, isn't it? It's very much what have you done for me lately. Yeah. Oh, um, we're, all, we're all knee jerk. He doesn't owe me yeah. anything. He, he puts £20 million a year out of his own pocket into the club to keep it sustaining and keep it afloat. And you know what? I'd get sick of that as well. Yeah, and he'll always be the man that bought you Janino, so we can never hold it. Well, worse. exactly, so you can't complain. And, and all those good times, none of those would have happened. Brian Robson wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him. You know, the UEFA Cup final wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him. And, you know, I understand people sometimes say enough is enough, but at the same time, I don't know how you could... I, I think his, his managerial choices, um, a few of them have led a lot to be desired, shall we say. I think if you, if you look at Woodgate, if you look at... 
Pulis was a decent idea, but didn't work. Um, before that, like Steve Agnew, all right, Karanka, like very popular at the club. Um, but, you, you know, even before that, Tony Mowbray had to come in at one point to be given a chance, but it didn't work. Um, Strachan, it very, even Southgate at the time wasn't seen as being oh, a no, smart at the move. Time, no. He had no, famously had no badges, did he, at the time, which he needed at the, and everyone made a yeah, big fuss about yeah. that. Um, who knew where he'd be come 2019, eh? Um, talking to Chairman, though, it's a nice segue into what we're talking about today because it's actually a subject we've never discussed, which <laughs> after, what, over 100? I haven't lost count now. It must be in 120 episodes now, I think, we've done of this show. Yep, before Quickly Kevin. Yep, we were here first. Um, we had never really... I think we've clearly touched on them in different shows and different themes, but we've never really had a discussion we're not going to dissect every kind of because it will get to there's a certain point that i'm only interested in chairman and what they do in their dodgy dealings and then day-to-day business but there are a few funny stories uh that from, especially from this decade of certain individuals uh that we're just going to have a little look back today a little discussion about a few of them we've kind of called it 90s nuttiest chairman we've picked a nine out we've kept the number um that we're going to kind of go through as i said we're not going to go in major detail but look at some funny stories around sort of moments and owners and chairmen of the 1990s and um, this stemmed actually from you mr young who you did an article on the first guy that we are going to talk about for planet football on alan sugar and i must say before we get into it if you want to ever listen to about the next decade the 2000s planet football just started their own podcast called broken metatarsal um, I've listened to the first episode, really enjoyable. Um, if you want to listen to the 2000s and onwards, um, yeah, they've, they've decided that it's time that that is now retro, which made me feel even older that we're doing a 90s podcast and now this one that's further on. It's a bit scary, but yeah, give that a listen. Um, Broken Metatarsal, um, get it, search it on your device. It's, it's good stuff and we may be doing something together in the future. Um, but yeah, you did an article on Alan Sugar and he's the first kind of guy we're going to speak about. I think it's fair to say Sugar's not the most controversial figure in the 90s and some of the dealings and things stories that we will talk about today are really really bad but there are certain things he did that just weren't he's just not a very nice person really is he well it's just really i think he, ruthless would be the yes. kind of word i mean yeah. if you go on if you go and look on planet football for the thing i did and you read you tweeted it out from the account it's really interesting in the you know, Tottenham were going to go. I mean, it seems incredible. There were 11 million, I think, in the hall. This is just off the top of my head from my research yeah. and thing. And, and Terry Venables had put in three million pounds of his own money, and and he got um, Alan Sugar involved, and he put in three million pounds of his own money, and effectively saved the club. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it's one of them that people say about Sugar that he was kind of first in the in a long line of people, and it's hard to believe that they wouldn't have been some wealthy backer to go and save Tottenham Hotspur. But again, it was 1989, 1990, I think. Um, and then in 1991, obviously the biggest saleable asset who was power struggle came about you know venables was doing things like buying players that he he wasn't meant to buy gordon jury i think he was told that the club couldn't afford and he went and venables went and bought him and then um sheringham which is the which is the one um led to venables getting booted out of tottenham hotspur effectively um in that you know the, the deal was being held up for one reason or another and venables said oh brian clough likes a bung and Sugar said, no, absolutely not. We're not doing that at Tottenham. That's not my thing. And and yet, Sheringham ended up at Tottenham Hotspur, <laughs> remarkably. So, you know, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, uh, Sugar fired Venables on the morning. By the afternoon, a high court, court judge had put uh, Venables back into the club, uh, saying that Sugar didn't have the right to do it, which is very, very Spursy. Yeah, I think You've that's a lot say, of what Spurs fans instantly did to take a dislike the power struggle between him and obviously Terry Venables was very well loved at Spurs won the FA Cup yeah Park. Venables was very popular and that was the thing and, and when they went to the high court I mean Sugar was spat on and called Judas but this whole thing of this whole situation effectively boiled down to the fact that Sugar wouldn't give Brian Clough a bung whereas Terry Venables it was never proven one way or the other but the player ended up at White Hart Lane so and that was that was kind of the end of Venables really there, which, you know, then, then it all, you know, went a bit nutty at the formation of the Premier League, of course, which was originally 
um, which was just before Venables left the club, because at the, at the original meeting, Venables was obviously going to vote for ITV. Um, because originally the Premier League, we've talked about this before, yeah. but the Premier League was essentially an ITV idea. They were trying Greg to... Greg Dyke, yeah, yeah. Greg Dyke, yeah, was trying to get all that, all that together. And um, Venables, obviously being an ITV commentator, pundit, etc., would have voted for ITV. But at the meeting, he was pulled away. Um, yeah, Venables was pulled away on personal business and Sugar had to go and deputise for him. Uh, and, you know, coincidentally... Um, Amstrad were um, making all the satellite dishes for Sky yeah, at the time. That down, yeah. And there's the famous quote of, you've got to get your fucking arse down here and blow them out of the water. Mm. And it turned out he was on the phone to Sam Chisholm of, of Sky and they essentially locked up the deal between them. The deal went through by one vote, I think, which was Tottenham Hotspur's vote. Um, they, they, he, Sugar had offered not to vote to allow because he saw there was a conflict of interest. But um, all the other chairmen, apart from those at Arsenal and Manchester United, allowed him to vote, and that ended up being the casting vote, which saw the Premier League go to Sky, which is such a colossal well, thing. Well, it changes... We talk about this as the decade that changed football forever. That is the moment we kind of pinpoint it to, because that's when the money... That's when it became an industry rather than a sport, really. That's yeah, kind they were of going the there for a, they were going to ITV for a lot less as well. Oh, yeah, um, and then and and what they cooked up between them was the deal with the BBC, which obviously you know people wanted much of the day. I mean, and even now you don't see ITV going for Premiership because just for whatever reason it just simply doesn't work there, and, and they know that. So yes, yeah, so Sugar's kind of really nuts in, in in that point. Then there's you uncovered the story about. Klinsman, you know, when depending on who you believe, you know, Sugar is told that Klinsman is offered to him. Klinsman is told that Sugar wants him for Tottenham, but Klinsman fancies a change. Sugar is desperate. He thinks that Klinsman's going to pull out of it. Uh, so he arranges for a Sky Sports crew to follow him to Monaco to the boat so he can see them shaking hands as they come off the boat, <laughs> which is um, quite incredible in itself. And um, yeah, you yeah, get the deal done. And then obviously they fall out uh, when he leaves and goes to Bayern Munich, you know, and it's all, I wouldn't wash my car. Yeah, that's that the shirt. moment I always remember when I think of Alan Sugar as well, of the shirt, I wouldn't wash my car with that shirt, and calling foreign players Carlos Kickerballs. Carlos Kickerballs. Which is yeah, just well, so 90s, it's unbelievable. Well, that was because, that was, I mean, this is how 90s it was, Ash. It was, a, it was for an interview on Sports Night. Because we... I, I thought it was for Match of the Day or something. Midweek football. Midweek yeah, football midweek football. And it was yeah. for an interview and, and the BBC crew turned up to interview Sugar with this shirt that Klinsman had signed for him. And he just, I mean, it's a very famous clip. Although it's not on YouTube. Yeah, I've, uh, I struggled because I wanted to just, well, obviously post it on Twitter would help, but also just remind myself, but I couldn't actually find it, which is very odd. Uh, maybe Sid Lambert can dig it out. He seems to be the man that finds every oh, I was with him. At, I, I was with him at Bishop Stortford FC versus Enfield Town on uh, Saturday. Well, you live the glamorous life, you two, don't you? One all. <laughs> one all in the FA Trophy it was. 317 there. Uh, quite disappointed crowd. it wasn't 316. But oh, there you go. It was a good afternoon. You're allowed... I didn't know that, you know, it's the first time I've been to non-league football. I didn't know you, you had to swap ends at half-time. Yeah, no, I haven't done that for a while. But yeah, I went to go Maidstone when they're a bit more non-league. They're a bit... Well, they are non-league now, but I think they're class themselves a bit more professional club but I remember doing that there as well at Maidstone Welling maybe Welling United back in the day went there a few times but yeah no, that's a good night out um, lastly on Alan Sherman I mean, yeah the Klinsman thing came back to egg on his face because obviously he resigned for the club in the next he came back well, under yeah. Christian Gross I mean yeah, well that was the other thing his appoint manager appointments were always his manager appointments very were really odd. odd he put yeah. in obviously Venables but then Peter Shreves was in and then uh, I think they did the, the duo of Ray Clements and uh, who am I forgetting? Who was he with? Um, Doug Livermore. Yes, Doug Livermore. And then um, obviously Francis, Jerry Francis from your lot. That was a decent, I think that was of not just being biased, but he was the up and coming manager at that yeah, point. Yeah, well, that, that, he was like future England manager yeah. at that time. Yeah. You know, that's how he was seen. So that was a decent one. But then he Christian goes, Christ. I mean, and the next day is, Francis goes on the Tuesday, I think. And on the Wednesday, Christian Gross is in charge, which is just like he looked at Arsenal and went for the happy yeah. shopper version <laughs> of. And then, of course, after that, he puts George Graham in charge, yeah, which, which is so weird. Yeah. I mean, they um, won a trophy under Graham, but still, it, I don't think they, they ever really took to him. Well, I, I, I mentioned this in the article. is uh, We went to see, and this is in 2000, 
in yeah like june or july of 2000 and we went to see Chaz and dave at the ark in stockton and they were doing a bit where they were taking um questions from the audience and it was the day they'd sold david ginler and i said oh what do you think about today's new news Chaz? you know lads with uh david ginler being sold and, and dave and Chaz just went George Graham, he ain't the man for us. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that like sums it up. It, it just seemed to be a spite Arsenal again. So it was kind of really peculiar, like little man syndrome going on with Arsenal, which, you know, still comes in with, you know, the other way around with some totterings day and all that. And, and I don't know, it's... I think Tottenham have kind of they are bigger now. Arsenal were obviously sort of a more more successful certainly in the league, whereas now it's a little bit nip and tuck. Yeah. But yeah, really sort of peculiar. And then he and then he sold his his two lots, his two big slices of the club in I think two thousand and three and two thousand and nine, maybe or something like that. Um, but yeah, really, it's just he is actually pivotal in. English football. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. The, the Premier League thing, especially, but then the signing of Klinsman, I think, is really, really, really important to British football in terms of because Cantona wasn't that star name when he came. No, in. he made him, he made was, himself a star name, didn't he? Yeah, yeah Cantona was an outcast and hadn't yeah. really found his home, whereas Klinsman was. Un- well, he'd come off the '94 World Cup where he was um, one of the stars of the tournament. And yeah, was, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, absolutely. Him and, and Burkamp arrive in in this, which we've discussed the death on this but they are yeah for me the the moment the Premier League went oh okay this is the this is where the big boys play to coin a phrase from a different <laughs> I've industry. heard that before do you know how much Jurgen Klinsmann was on at Tottenham Hotspur in his first no start? tell me £8,000 a week which in now sounds little but at the time that would have been yeah a hefty sum well off. if you think probably two years later we signed Ravinelli and, and £42,000 a week made the front of the newspapers mm, so that's not as much as you think there might be Oh. Well, you got they got value for money that season. That's that's be honest. Oh, they probably sold that in shirts every yeah, week. Exactly. Right. Uh, let's move on because we've got uh, quite a few to, to just chat through. Um, moving across London, um, we won't go into a great detail as all of them because um, some of them are just more of a, a pointer to a couple of things that happened during their tenure. Uh, Ron Nodes at Crystal Palace. Um, this is something you when we were talking on the group chat on WhatsApp. You reminded me what was the main thing I remember of Ron Nodes because it have to be said. Before we get into the kind of 90s, he was in charge for a long time, since the early 80s, did a lot of good for Crystal Palace in those early days, got them up well, to... Yeah, he bought Palace in 1981, yeah. and I think the main thing that he's kind of most remembered, well, I mean, there's lots of things he's remembered for, but Steve Koppel, manager in, uh, he made him manager in 1984, and he stayed there for nine years, yeah. which... And probably one of, you know, as Palace fans would say, a very, one of their biggest nine years in, in history, they became an established top-light club, they reached the cup final in 91, obviously one of the... Um, the 90, sorry, one of the best cup finals of of all time, actually, that 3-3 at Wembley. And they had players like Ian Wright, Mark Bright, and yeah, it was a great period. Well, they got them, I mean, they got Andy Gray from Dulwich Hamlet, and they got Ian Wright from Greenwich Borough. And then the hometown. Sorry? That's my hometown. It's, oh, well, yeah. there you go. There you go. Um, then, he, then they paid, uh, I think it was 75,000 for Mark Bright from Leicester. So if you think about that, that's, that's just insane. And then. And um, Ron Nodes himself um, was the one who was persuading Koppel to go and buy Jeff Thomas from Crew, and it took them six viewings to go and watch him. And then obviously he went on to represent England, and I think he was the captain in um, the cup there that you that you mentioned. Yeah, I think he was. They finished third in the league. Yeah, they were a great. I mean, they became kind of everyone's second favourite team as well, didn't they? Because they played attractive football. Steve Koppel was seen as this up and coming manager. They seemed like a forward thinking club. And then in the mid-90s, it all just went a bit pear and it's where Ron Nodes' kind of tenure comes to an end and you get this towards the end of his reign, we get this bizarre story where after the departure of the disastrous managerial team of Attilio Lombardo and Thomas Brolin, which failed to save Palace from relegation, he took over as caretaker Three games. manager. Three games. Which is like, I mean, as a QPR fan, Flavio Briatore, that was always his dream when we had him in the mid-2000s. Um, he never quite got it, although if you watch Four Year Plan, he kind of did manage the team um, mm. until he and Dow, he decided to tell you to F off. Um, but yeah, he, he was gen- he was well, caretaker manager for three, great, three games. They didn't win any of those games. No, the 1-1 one, one, lost one, drawn one, drew one, didn't they? Oh, the cup game. I haven't got a league game there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's, he, that is being fair to him. I think he got his badge in about 1978, his, his FA coaching badge. So, 
you know, and, and he said, and, and we'll get into what he did next. Um, but yeah, he sort of, he did that thing, didn't he? But yeah, very peculiar. But he, that was always his, his dream. And then once he, um, once he sold Palace to uh, another WCW reference. Go Goldberg. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he um, then went to Brentford, bought the club and put himself in charge. <laughs> Again. And... <laughs> and they won the league. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so what Palace didn't realise is they had a genius manager in charge. They just didn't want, they weren't scared enough to go for it. And they employed uh, Terry Venables instead. But yeah, so very, I mean. Yeah, he, he was, he got the manager of the year award in 1988, <laughs> which is just fantastic. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. I think it's, I think it's one of them things where you go, if he's doing a good job, then you sort of grudgingly accept it, don't you? I think. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, who are we to rely on someone who's doing really well to fight their background and stuff? And yeah. I think well, in apparently that... Manchester City went for him once he sold Palace, but he wouldn't go for it on on the grounds that um, you know he wouldn't have been allowed to put himself manager at Manchester City, and it was what he wanted to do. Look at that sort of <laughs> one way or the other, but you can't complain when he got the results, especially very early. I think I think he did it for a long time. There was the there was the thing as well. Obviously, with the, there was a Channel Four documentary about him, where he said a couple of sort of unsavoury things yes, towards the black players. To the black he players, said yes. uh, the quote, which I'm I'm looking at. Yeah, I've seen. Um, you also need white players in there to balance things up and give the team some brains and some common sense. Now he says he was stitched up, but I, I'm like, I don't know how. Yeah, you can possibly stitch up saying so something much of a kind of obscene with that. There's not quote there, is there? That's, that's pretty bang on, <laughs> what you say. Yeah, pretty in terms sort of, of um, yeah. He's, you can't really pick uh, that apart. That he's kind of to the point of what his opinion is. But, I mean, I, I mean, there's rumour, and it's probably conjecturing looking back, but that's what led to the departure of the guys that we mentioned before, like Ian Wright and Mark Bright. But I think there's a little bit of fairy tale in that since Arsenal came in for him right of course he was going to leave for Arsenal yeah because that was his team that was his why team. would he not go um, you know yeah. Sheffield Wednesday were a bigger club at that point in terms of where they were in the, in the Premier League they were reaching cup finals so Mike Bright of course he was going to go there so I'm sure Rick or Leeds yeah is that on, on I think I? he did yeah again who yeah, yeah which I'm, I mean sure no you know a black player would rightfully feel aggrieved here in that but whether they can you know completely led to those two things happening at the same time I'm not sure but um, yeah I mean I, I, as a manager, you, you, you know, as a Brentford, well done. But yeah, I remember at the time Palace, it was a very, very odd notion, but not one that's unlike Mr. Mark Bowen at Reading, who was sporting director and then... And then made himself manager. And then it's somebody who I... He was under the horrible Mark Hughes reign at QPR. To see him then come and win, oh no, get a point at Loftus Road last week, I was just like... Grrr. There's a brilliant as well to the, you know, the guys who make this podcast and help us make this podcast, uh, West 12 Media, their, their best known podcast is the Q, official QPR podcast. They did an interview with Mark Bowen towards the end of Mark Hughes' reign at um, Loftus Road. And it's, if you can find it, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a gem. He seems to have had a few whiskeys before doing it. And ah. he's quite open to the fact that they don't know why they keep losing, which kind of opens up all kind of, you know, well, Mark Hughes didn't know what he was doing. That was kind of proved. So yeah, it's a great interview. So hopefully he's got you know a better idea of what he wants to do with a team for Reading but yeah that made me laugh the fact that he just appointed him himself um he's still sticking with I've got a London I've just realized the first four manager uh, chairman stroke owners we're talking about were from London Sam Haman um at Wimbledon which were there for a long long time since the late 70s 77 to 1997 Sam what we Hamann. didn't mention actually about Ron Nords from the 70s which is quite an interesting thing is that he tried to do the, the Milton Keynes thing in about 19, in the late 70s, early 80s, he wanted to move Wimbledon up there. He bought Milton Keynes City for a pound and uh, put Sam Hamam in as one of the directors there um, and wanted to do that. And he also wanted to merge Charlton Palace and Wimbledon, which is weird. Yeah, um, yeah to make some sort of South, South London, London Super Club, yeah. which wouldn't have worked. No, because they're quite far from it. Well, Charlton especially. That's a good 45 minutes across South London to get to... Wimbledon and Crystal Palace but yeah we'll talk about mergers in a second of, of London clubs as well with Sam Man. Um I mean he, Sam was kind of the face in the background of the crazy gang he was there throughout Wimbledon's rise so again I think the you know the disclaimer here is that for all his craziness and he's he's more eccentric behaviour I would say Sam Man than anything too controversial or criminal as we'll get into later on so, but he was somebody, a, a definitely a character. I mean, the stories you talk about Sam Hamam, he promised Dean Holdsworth a camel 
if he broke the tiny goal barrier. He <laughs> he locked Robbie Earl in a dressing room and refused to let him out until he signed for Wimbledon. There's a great picture that I'll put probably when we put the the, the episode up along with the you know the pictures on him. He used to parade elephants around the side of the pitch at Selhurst Park. And I cannot find a reason why or where they actually came from. Mm. But that's what he used to do. Maybe a good luck thing? I don't know. But... Yeah, he used to uh, make the players eat sort of Middle Eastern yeah. delicacies, didn't he? If they lost games or lost bets or lost things. So he'd go and make them eat like, you know, it was kind of like I'm a celebrity before they be before I'm a celebrity. Yeah, he's, but, you know, he's, he was always a fun character. I remember him. Obviously, Wimbledon was a very unique club. If anyone's seen a documentary that BT Sport did a couple of, in fact, 18 months ago on the crazy game it was a really good watch and you see all the, the fun that they had together so I think he's more of a old remember him and he, you talk about mergers I the merger that he was obviously you know, led to MK Dons but that wasn't him at, at the club at the time but there were times when they almost merged with, with QPR which um, is a one is a headline I always remember I was working at uh, Shoe Fair in Welling High Street at the time and on my, uh, yeah, the glamour of early jobs. And I walked through the co-op on my, on my lunch break and I saw, that I hadn't seen the paper that morning and the headline was Quimbledon and the two badges. When you see QPR on the front of a newspaper was very bizarre. Um, and that there were the, the... Quimbledon. Quimbledon, that was one of the names. Uh, where... Are you familiar with what the phrase quim means? Or were there? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not completely familiar with what the term because it's, a, it's it, you know like a lady's you know a, the lady parts the oh, lady garden oh, is, is it the quim. I was a quim. Oh, I should know that. Yeah, it says a lot. Yeah. It says a lot about for my, my relationship with my wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, yeah. So that that was a thing at the time. They they talked about merging with QPO again. Completely different sides of London. Um, I think MCAT. No, it would be. Don Queen's Park Don's the names were terrible but Quimbledon was one of them which made it's like not a place it's just it's like merging tag teams in WWE isn't it or those stupid <laughs> names they give couples it's like yeah but that well, I always remember that and ringing my dad again you've seen this and back then you know there was no internet so it would probably have been mocked for all just being a rumour but yeah, I was yeah, very yeah. very scared at that point that I'd be supporting a team that was no longer my own because um, we were in financial trouble at that point. But it never happened. Um, Sam McMahon obviously left in 1997 and sold on to the, the foreign owners that, he, that then employed Egil Olsen and that led the to... The Icelandic guys, yeah. yeah. And then that was the end of kind of Wimbledon. That's kind of the end. I mean, it's, in a way, it's kind of a not that Sam McMahon kind of was Wimbledon at the end then. And he obviously went on to Cardiff and, and all that, what happened there eventually with Vincent Tan and all that. But yeah, a, a fun character from the 90s, I think. And um, somebody who on this list just because of those sort of funny stories. Um, West London, sticking with West London, talking to QPR, they're, they're rivals. Yes, we are really. Ken Bates, old oh, father Christmas, I'm... old whatever you want to call him, Colonel Sanders from the KFC, um, in charge of Chelsea for a very, very long time, famously bought the club for a pound, um, which is what the, the story everyone um, remembers from the, from the 80s. Um, never a nice man, we hear about Ken Bates. Again, I mean, there's lots of, Different stories you can read about him. Never the nicest individual when it came to business. But I think at times you have to be ruthless. And I think Alan Sugar probably showed too much side of that. But Ken Bates is kind of in, for me, kind of in the same mould, I think, as Alan Sugar, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing, the big thing in the 90s is kind of the, the battle with Matthew Harding, I think. Yes. Uh, and, you know, even even when he died, Bates was still sort of slagging him off, saying uh, evil should... Tr- I don't believe evil should triumph. And uh, Matthew Harding was an evil man. I mean, it, but seemingly very well loved at Chelsea. Um, yeah, very, very, very peculiar. I mean, but Chelsea wouldn't be the Chelsea that they are now without Ken Bates no. at all. I mean, he, he obviously redeveloped Stamford Bridge. I mean, there's, if you look at whenever you watch a sort of early 90s footballers years, they're always in front of that. Uh, <laughs> you know, lots of rebuilding going on. Wasn't there uh, like but, a, a massive gap as well between the fans and like a huge kind of, even almost like a running track type thing around Stamford Bridge, I remember it. Like, like the, the fan, there used to be more of a pitch behind the goal before it was redeveloped. I yeah. If you look on the old, like I was watching um, football years this morning, 90, what was I watching this morning? What year was it? 96, 97. Yeah, it was that your fa- your favourite. Oh, I was my favourite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was watching the beginning of that while I was trying to get my daughter ready for for a nursery. But yeah, the groundways seemed to be a lot further away until they redeveloped it. Of course, the famous story with Ken as well is that the the electric fences that he tried to put in to deter hooligans, which you know, 
well, we're all for stopping violence. Electrocuting them is probably not, yeah, not well, the most they, legal would they, way. <laughs> they wouldn't be, um, the electricity board wouldn't uh, supply electricity to the fences, which I think is quite funny. Yeah. Like, it's funny, that's the thing that would stop it, not the fact that you're frying human beings. It's just like, yeah. it's not Abdullah the Butcher in WCW here. This is actual things that would, would actually happen. Um, <laughs> and he also got sued for libel for some of these supporters as well, as after describing one fans group as parasites. Yeah, is, and he settled with them out of court without yeah. accepting liability. Yeah. So, I mean, there's probably a lot more. I, I first to admit, we have, I've done, because Ken Bates' tenure is very, very long, and you could probably do a whole podcast on the stories that come out of him and Stanford Bridge, but he, we couldn't, we'd be able to if he's not included. I think um, he's a bad man who did good things yeah. for, if, you're, if you're a Chelsea fan. That you reluctantly go, yeah, cheers, cheers, Ken, thanks for the memories. And then, you know, mm. obviously what they've gone on to since with Roman is he's the man that's, that, that set it up. And then he went to, he went to Leeds, and well, he went to Partick Thistle, I think, and then Leeds United, which was. Uh, not a happy time for Leeds United fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of the time has been. Have you? I want to see their documentary, but I don't. At the same time, it seems to be the in thing that they're all doing these documentaries, doesn't it? But yeah, mm. yeah. We watch the four-year plan. It's the best one. Uh, Michael Knighton. This is a funny story because this could have been Man United. This was what we, you know. And again, it's a quite '80s reference. We we, we realised that because it was '89. Um, we wanted to get Matthew on, but we couldn't quite get him on to talk about that. But it's not really the Man United strand that where the bonkersness kind of happens. It's later in the decade where he turns up at uh, little own Carlisle at the time. Um, and some strange things go on there, don't they? Well, it, I mean, obviously he was famous for juggling the ball on the yeah. pitches at the beginning of the 89-90 yeah, yeah, yeah. season. So there you go, Matthew. We can have that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matthew has been texting us all week going you know that's 1989 yeah, you know that yeah, yeah. Yes, we know. yeah. um so, so yeah but then it's quite interesting 442 did a thing about michael knight because obviously he went and then stayed on the board i think until about 1992 at manchester united and and what he says in this 442 piece is basically everything that he suggested to them is everything that the club is now or certainly became and it, it, he had all these ideas about branding and you know really um really getting hold of the fan base and expanding it and and you know manipulating it really to to expand the brand of Manchester United all over the place which was you know now you know we all know that Hank is the preferred tire of Real Madrid and all these things and and sort of he he takes a lot of credit for that which is quite interesting he also says that like he doesn't understand why Martin Edwards doesn't like him because essentially when his 10 million bid for Manchester United fell through he ended up selling it selling the club about 10 years later for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions more so you know he said he should be he should be thanking him really and clapping his hands and I don't think he would have stayed on the board of the club for that long you generally get found out pretty quickly in those situations I think and um and he, he was there for a while but yeah Carlisle United he then thought he then decided he was going to turn them into uh, the new Man United yeah the new Manchester United which was yeah not the uh, difficult seeing as they you know been a lower league team for most of their well certainly at that point their the history in that era they'd been a lower league club um, but he yeah that was his aim when he took over in 1996 um, never really happened they bounced around the third and fourth tiers uh, and then he, he did a Ron Nodes and made himself manager in 1997 yeah another one of them yeah, yeah. And, and bravely guided the team to relegation <laughs> yeah yeah so but was he was he in charge for the famous goal the, he was uh... he was there he was part of that yeah he was there that saved them he was part of the club still he was still owner because he was there till 2002 so yeah he was still part of the club when Jimmy Glass scored that last minute um, equalised like, winner wasn't it it's, mm. was it Hereford I think it was Hereford uh, yeah it was when Nigel Peterson was in charge wasn't yeah, it yeah. and uh, it was a game against Plymouth Argyle in yeah. but there was an interesting thing about him he, he sort of said he'd had an off the record conversation with a journalist from uh, the West Cumbrian Evening News and Star there you go uh, he said he'd seen a UFO during <laughs> the summer of 1976 when I was born in fact uh, which had left him with a telepathic message urging him don't be afraid Michael uh, <laughs> he was he, he was he was very angry at how this was reported um, although and although the newspaper said he was sufficiently cooperative to draw a sketch of the UFO in the reporter's notebook <laughs> it was on their front page it says a Knighton alien spoke to me 
Yeah, yeah. Must have been the biggest uh, selling uh, edition of the Evening and News style that they've ever had, surely. I don't think... Yeah, you could have to. Have you got that newspaper? I should I, have to. I'll uh... try and dig it out. I'm, I've, I've seen the, the headline written on an internet source somewhere, but I, yeah, let's try. I'll try and find a picture of that. It's something as well. There were some reports saying that he's, his wife had been abducted by aliens as well. He was very much into this whole trend. I don't know if he was just trying to big up the story at that point, but yeah, very, very odd random strand from from his tenure. <laughs> Where is he now? What's he doing now? What is he doing now? Let's have a look. Michael Knighton. Um, I did this. Was this the one I read? And he was no. There was one of them who's now just works in an e-fit cigarette shop. I can't remember who that was. Oh no, that was no, that was uh, George Reynolds. Oh, we'll get to him. Get to him. We we, we will get yeah, to him. Yeah. Um, no, I think nothing of note. Writing a book, he said in August 2009, Knighton said that he was writing a book about his time at Carlisle United to be published in 2020. Oh, maybe we'll go long form on that then. When oh, that, here we go. When that okay. book comes out, we might get to see. Oh, it's Pitch as well. I know them. I know some people there. Okay, well, maybe we'll get him on the show. And try get him Let's on get show. him on. Let's get him on. Let's talk about aliens. I'm well up for that. Um, so, yeah, that was Michael Knighton. But, yeah, I mean, at some point, if there's ever, I'm sure there's an 80s podcast. The main United story, I'm sure, will be talked as well in, in long form because that's a, that's a great moment that that image i can remember that image of him um, doing kinky puppies on the on the pitch as well and it all went to pot after that after it was quite embarrassing that the deal um fell through i found, I found a quote it's saying like uh it's his his spell as team manager in 88 89 was a press invention he said he wanted peter beadsley to be the manager um but it was decided to appoint our coaches as joint managers but they wanted to front they were not happy with that side of the job then he's his uh for him being manager I had been a PE teacher and I'd been interested in sports science all my life. <laughs> cool, you oh, had, cool, you had. cool, you had. Uh, moving on, let's go to the North East um, and talk. Uh, one of the first kind of stings, media things that I remember happening. Um, front page news. Front page news. Uh, this is Freddie Shepherd. Was John Hall in the room as well? It was his son. Oh right, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I've put Douglas John, Hall. Douglas is Hall. I've put John Hall, and I thought that's not right. Um, and it, I mean, by and large, Freddie Shepherd was you know the man who brought Alan Shearer, with along with Sir John Hall as well, to, to Newcastle in 1996. Always seen as a you know lovable roguey type character, but this sting in 1998 by the News of the World with. One of their classic fake sheiks. <laughs> it's always a fake sheik, isn't it? It's the same guy every time. You think people would learn, wouldn't yeah. you? Um, the thought that the thought that he was a wealthy Arab prince setting up a business deal, and and of course, what what they did do was they uh, they took the piss out of Alan Shearer, calling him the Mary Poppins of English football. Um, they were laughing at the fans for buying Newcastle shirts and explaining how much they cost as opposed to how much they sold for, and they all did this whilst they were in a brothel. Oh. So that was good. <laughs> and it also described female fans as dogs. I mean, oh. Yeah, yeah, they're on, yeah, they're on uh, fans. I mean, it was a big deal at the time. Oh, massive, because, yeah. I mean, obviously, front of the news of the world, Newcastle, sort of late, late 80s, all this thought that Newcastle had always been a massive club, and obviously I'm wearing my Middlesbrough hat here, but they were getting like sort of 15,000, 20,000 late 80s, early 90s, until John Hall came in, um, and after our dealers hadn't really worked out, they brought in Keegan, and that's when the you know the rocket boosters were put under Newcastle United, and they became, you know, in a way one of the you know certainly one of the teams of the 1990s. You'd probably say like up in the top five in the oh easy league, yeah everyone's favourite second team probably especially well. in terms of incident and you know excitement they seem to be i mean you said crystal palace were everybody's second favorite team um i think that newcastle united certainly had that man in the mid 90s yeah definitely in the mid 90s yeah. yeah apart from if you were us or sunderland yeah or uh, manchester united i suppose mm, yeah uh, but um so yeah so he and he kind of transformed them then the you know the the crowds are packed out and and deck met going to watch newcastle versus swindon town that's how they become pals they they didn't meet then they'd met years ago on bike grove and everything but that's when they became mates so we've got we've got them to thank for that is that Um, true i I never knew that story did they not is they didn't like each other when Uh... they were on bike grove and then one day they just decided to go to um, Newcastle versus Swindon Town together and ended up becoming best mates. Did you post a picture the other day of Keegan with Ant and Deck and they were in Newcastle yes. shirts? Well, not, yeah, not quite a while ago actually, I think, but yeah. All right, yeah, yeah. It, it's in my head for some reason. Yeah. So they went, so that, I mean, they were, and, and they were, Sir John Hall especially was absolutely worshipped 
up there on Tyneside for what he'd done and seen as, you know, um, revitalising and resurrecting Newcastle United. And, and you know, I, I mock Newcastle for their delusions of grandeur all the time. Um, but at this point, it was probably sort of justified, really, when they were finishing. I think they finished third and then second, wasn't yeah, it, obviously? Yeah. Second again uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, and second again. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was kind of justified. And then this incident, this sting, you know, brothel, shirts, oh. slagging oh. off Shearer, which you're always going to come off second yeah. best slagging off Shearer in Newcastle, as Ruth Hullett found out, as yeah. Michael Owen has found out. Neil, Neil Lennon found out. Found out. <laughs> If you slag off Alan Shearer in Newcastle, you're going to get drowned out, yeah. shouted down. You're going to lose that battle. It doesn't matter if you're Jesus God Almighty himself. Um, you know, that's just how it is. Um, so so I think this is kind of a start of a bit of that unravelling of of that, really, of that hero worship of the people that were, that were in charge. Because, you know, slagging off the women, slagging off the shirts, slagging off the fans, it's like... They, one thing they did have at that point, Newcastle United, was it, it was very much, you know, they still had Toonami, but I mean, on both sides of it, you know, on, on the on the ownership of the club, on the with the team and with the fans, it was one almighty movement. And, and ever since then, it kind of hasn't been really. And obviously now it most definitely isn't. Uh, and I, I think that was the start of the unravelling of that, really. I think we'd probably, it'd probably take um, Freddie Shepard now over Mike Ashley, wouldn't they? Oh, God, yeah, all day long. Even yeah. slagging off the fans and slagging off Alan Shearer or whoever the hero is at the moment. But, yeah, I remember well, that. I mean, they would if he hadn't have been dead for two years, Ash. But... Yeah, I know. I was going to literally come on to that and say he's no longer with us. But, yeah, yeah. In, in theory. And having said that, they probably would take a dead Freddie Shepherd <laughs> over a live Mike Ashley. Oh, if I could call the episode that and get away with it, I probably would. What, dead Freddie Shepherd? <laughs> dead Freddie Shepherd and the rest of the chairman. I'll just call it that, yeah. Yeah, just call it that. Um, if these did, they did resign initially, but then voted themselves back on the board. It was um, straight back in, yeah. yeah it, wasn't, remained, it wasn't long. They remained in and around the club until 2007 and saw the end of, of Bobby Robson as well. Um, these last three, um, I admit, I didn't know too much about in terms of what they've done, but there's a couple of cracking stories about these guys and, and their their ownerships of, of, of clubs i mean it's not cracking if you're fans of the clubs oh no question. not at all not at all well, and, i mean and, they and are sort the, of really darkly funny yeah, and if you're a fan of the criminal justice system as well they're probably not that funny either but um nope. let's start with the light slightly lighter one first of all <laughs> in douglas craig who was the owner and chairman of new york i mean City. we say slightly slightly lighter i mean he was the only chairman yeah i didn't mean that was a horrible turn of who wouldn't sign up to let's kick racism out of football yeah what an incredible i mean that tells you everything you need to know about could, this horrible man you could just end it there like you know yeah that, that's it that's the that's all you need to know but it does get a bit sort of darker and stranger yeah, I mean, this is so. He was on charge of York City from 1990 to 2002, so he was there a long time. Um, yeah. 12 years for, for all this to happen. As you say, he's most famous for, for being the, the, the only only one of the 19 uh, Football League chairman to refuse to sign to Let's Kick Out for Racism, which I don't know how, how did he get away with that anyway? I mean, it's just incredible. That, I mean, that would not happen in 2019, that just wouldn't happen. And rightfully, he's so. driven out of the club, well, yeah, completely, completely, completely. Because what I mean, it, it, I mean, this is a stupid thing to say, but what you what you are saying is, I am racist, I am racist, yeah. And even if you I are, I am a racist man, and I think racism is all right, yeah, I absolutely. I don't agree, we should kick it out. Yeah. That he wasn't driven out, and this is not like any, this is not like you know, 1955 or even 1975. This is what 1992, yeah, yeah. Holy moly! Yeah. Um, 1994, even which you know, you, I know we're still having these discussions in 2019 about the evil of racism and how horrible it is and how stupid it is. But I mean, even then, that is—I don't think that's the sort of—I don't think 1994 is when you know stuff like that was being driven out by then. It's incredible how that. Was let, I mean, is it? I imagine being in York City and no disrespect to York, it got pushed under the carpet slightly because they weren't a top-flight club or a well-known club. But even so, it's it's unbelievable that that was was allowed. Um, I want to say things get worse, but I don't. In, technically, that's there shouldn't be anything that, that you worse than basically saying I am a racist. But later in his tenure, he uh, he, he sold the ground. This is quite confusing. So he sold the ground of York's uh, beloved Booth and Crescent to a holding company um, for one hundred and sixty-five thousand pounds odds. Um, and then forced the club to buy it back for 4.5 million <laughs> or face extinction. Yeah. 
just, nice. I mean, this kind of thing was happening sort of semi-often where people were buying grounds and then trying to sell them to Asda or something and make themselves a load of money. I mean, we've just had the situation recently with Derby County when they've essentially sold the ground. Mel Morris has sold the ground to himself so he could inject 80 million, 90 million pounds into, into Derby. And it's a loophole that will be closed, but it certainly... You know, I mean, Steve Gibson, the aforementioned, is going wild about it because we Middlesbrough stuck to FFP rules um, and they've just found this loophole in it, which is perfectly legal. But, you know, Gibson's probably gutted he never thought of it first. Um, but, yeah, that's insane. So then they, they had to get um, all the money very, 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 very quickly. It's it's a bizarre. I mean, the only thing that people remember really on a good note is that he was in charge of the club when they beat Man United in the League Cup, but it had nothing to do with him because obviously he's not on the pitch. But he did. So did he get the four point five million quid? What happened? I don't know. There's. I I tried to find this out. There is no end to this story. So maybe that never happened. I mean, it didn't actually because they didn't obviously go out of business either. So hmm. it, it obviously wasn't something he tried to do but didn't get away with. In the end. It says he's tried tried to force the club back to buy their own ground. This is what I'm looking at on yeah. the Guardian, and so you know it, that seems like it didn't exactly happen. But I mean, dear me. I mean, interest and inflation is one thing, but uh, 4.5 million. I'm not sure um, that's well, certainly not legal. I'm sure there's some dodgy dealers going on there as well. But yeah, Douglas mm. Craig is he still with us? I know there's a few of them that is not. Uh, I. I don't know. I can't. I can't find it anywhere. No, no, don't. Um, let's move on then. To yeah, it gets worse. This is <laughs> it gets worse as well for George Reynolds. I mean, again, his hold of hands up. This is slightly going into the 2000s here because he did take over at Darlington in 1999. He going into the club, he was already literally <laughs> a burglar, a safe cracker, and a smuggler who had been who had served time in jail. So, I mean. The FA's fit and proper test that they do now clearly wasn't at his best in 1999 if they're letting criminals take over clubs. Um, but that's what George Reynolds was. Um, they were in the fourth tier of, of football at that point. Um, you may famously remember they made bids for Paul Gasco and then later in the next decade for Tino Espria. I'm sure Fistino Espria even turned up at the club. I was, he did. Yeah. He absolutely did. Yeah. Um, and then before deciding that it was it, it, it wasn't going to be him, he tried to um, bankroll a twenty five thousand seat stadium that and name it after himself as well, which I think the is Reynolds Arena. The yeah, Reynolds well, Arena. it's still there, and it's kind of it's used by Darlington Rugby, uh, but a bigger white elephant you could never hope to see. I mean, I think the biggest crowd that's ever been there was for Elton John. He was one of these that had gone in with big ideas. He thought that Darlington were going to be a Premier League side. It was never going to happen. He built this 25,000-seat arena. Nobody was ever going to go to that. I mean, if you, there's not many, and with all respect to Darlington, there's not many Darlington fans in Darlington. There certainly wouldn't be enough to fill a 25,000-seater every week. Most of them are Sunderland, Newcastle, or Middlesbrough, um, and with most of them going to, towards Newcastle and Sunderland, really. I mean... Uh, Reynolds himself was a, he's from Sunderland, was a Sunderland fan. Um, he'd been <clears throat> he'd been to jail for all sorts: safe cracking, burglary, theft, theft, smuggling watches, <laughs> handling explosives. Um, he, absolutely insane. But then he he became. Um, I think he he amassed something about like two hundred and fifty, two hundred and eighty million pounds. Got on the rich list. Uh, apparently lived next door to the Spice Girls in London. Just absolutely, um, absolutely insane. And the fact was, you know, Darlington ended up essentially going bust because of him, because yeah. of the money spent, because of the ground, because of everything else, and getting relegated about um, eight or nine, uh, relegated four divisions to the Northern Football League Division One, and reformed. They're now owned by the fans, and they're doing reasonably well. But I mean, you know, I think Darlington could have lived without safe cracker George Reynolds coming along. And as you said, I think before we came on. Uh, or was it just now when you said he, he now runs a e-cigarette shop? Yeah, and he, well, in between that, he went back to prison as well. He was sent to prison for a third time for tax evasion and money laundering. Yeah, he had half a million quid in the boot of his car. <laughs> Amazing. Somebody just found half a million quid in the boot of his car and he, he went to... Uh, yeah, he's got a shop in Chesterley Street if you want to go and see him. Um, <laughs> kind of get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> he probably would. I mean, he went on Oprah Winfrey. 
it's a, it's a, it literally is a different era, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it went on. Op- the Oprah Winfrey show, absolutely um, insane. Yeah, he says he still goes to Middlesbrough, um, so that's good. <laughs> another, another positive note for Middlesbrough on this on this episode. Um, that's finished off with our ninth nuttiest chairman of the nineteen nineties, and this is a story I, I knew nothing about before doing some research on this yesterday, and. I love it for all the wrong reasons because it's so... Yeah, it's horrible, but it's very funny. It's so daft. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, so let's set the scene. Ken Richardson is the owner of Doncaster um, Rovers. Yeah. Um, in, Rovers, yeah. Yeah, it didn't make sense for a second there. Um, from 1992 to 1998. But the story that everybody, well, should be familiar with now that we tell it and one I enjoyed very much <laughs> um, uh, kind of reading and, and absolutely gobsmacked that it actually happened was the year was 1995 um, Don, he was seen as Doncaster's saviour at the point Richardson but he hired two local criminals one a former SAS operative so bear that in mind to burn down Rovers Bellevue Stadium for a price he had £10,000 after having his plans for a new stadium thrown out by the local council so basically he was doing an insurance job that's what he was doing and he hired two local criminals one a former SAS operative the problem was, this is just brilliant, somebody left their phone at the scene of the crime. Yeah. Um, which was found in the rubble and then this linked was the guy, back. This was the guy, uh, Christiansen. This is the SAS uh, Alan operative. Christiansen, who yeah. was, the, yeah, who was the, the private investigator who he told to carry out the, uh, carry out the arson. Yeah. And it, it was then easily linked back to to, to Ken Osgood and Reynolds then um, Ken Richardson and obviously there was a message on his answer form that said amazing. the job's been done <laughs> amazing which led to Richardson sorry, spending four years in prison I know we shouldn't be oh, we shouldn't laugh sorry to the Richardson family and the SAS man and Doncaster Rovers who it was horrible for but what a ridiculous this is kind of dream team-esque turn of events it's ridiculous there's a great quote from the detectives who uh, who got Ken Richardson. He was described by them as the type of man who would trample a two-year-old child to pick up a two-pence piece. <laughs> I love that one of the articles I read, it says at the end, uh, he withdrew his financial backing of the club almost immediately. Well, of course yeah, he yeah. did. Oh, well, he was in prison for bloody arson. Well, you know, accessory to banned. arson. In 1982, he'd been banned from racing because he'd um, switched his horse in, in a race. 25-year ban from racing. Um yeah, this this man was a horrible man, and I've, you know, Doncaster Rovers have about recovered now. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, God's alive! I mean, it was very very tight for a while whether whether they would live. But yeah, um, the, the prosecution said it was the worst concoction of piffle, waffle, and flannel <laughs> that they'd ever heard. <laughs> that's just that's just mean on that area of the of England saying that. Doesn't it? I can't believe those words were actually used. Um, but yeah, that is a an, an astonishing story. It really, really was. Um, there's also the, the the slightly less criminal story of that he hired the former manager of Stockport County's club shop to be the club's manager as well. That's strange. Which, again, there's there's not enough um, evidence on the internet to suggest that if this guy was had any coaching experience, he would, I mean, the, the rules are different in 2019, but. I don't know why it was Stockport's uh, manager and uh, of the club shop. Who knows? I, who knows? But it, the only thing we can find it was the cheapest option. Now I'm sure there are cheaper options. You could go and probably get Doris the cleaner to manage the club. So there must be some. You go and get you go and get a lad off. Um, you know, likes to play FIFA or football manager. Yeah, or whatever it was then. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but I mean, that's again. You could probably laugh at that, but the arson and uh, probably not. But yeah. So hope gladly Don Custer Rovers have um, recovered from that. But what an unsavoury character and story that was from from the nineties, um, and probably the best way to end. <laughs> in, 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 yeah, well, yeah, we're not going to top set and fight. No, exactly. That's why I caught. Unless you do want to talk about Prashant Patani and uh, you know Mister Block and all that business. <laughs> well, there's there's very many stories behind Harchester United. Um, well, I must say that there are tons of stories from abroad. We've kept this kind of. English football so maybe we'll revisit because I've read some great stories from Italy as you can well imagine of, of crazy chairmen and owners out there which maybe we'll cover on, on another show but yeah the, we kept this just English football for the moment um, I think there's enough there that we've laughed yeah, and chatted sorry through. Doncaster Rovers fans but if you've got any tales you can always tweet us about oh them I'd love it. to hear more about Ken Richardson definitely and just that whole I'm definitely going to look into this a bit more just to see if we can um, find out the more finer details of this as well because I'm just I'm astonished that's a story I never knew about until this week. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely astonishing. 
Uh, anyway, well, that's all. We, we tied that up nicely on a nice hour version of this uh, latest episode of Alive and Kicking. Um, been very nice, this little table for two, Mr. Young. Um, where can people find you on the Soch? Everything is uh, that Joel Young. I nearly said the uh, old address yeah. there. Um, but yeah, that Joel Young, just come and listen to me talk about nonsense. Two top of the pops tonight, Ash. Double bammy. Yeah, one at half seven, one at nine o'clock. Well, we're on 88 on BBC at the moment. Four, so yeah, 1988, so we're really not far from 1990 <laughs> now. Really so not. then, you know, if, if we've still got things to talk about on this podcast, then uh, he might you know, turn we'll it to a top of the pops. <laughs> yeah, he might turn it to the top of the pops. 89 is going to be good. Surely that's a Jason Donovan, Kylie Minogue type. Jason already, Donovan yeah. last night. Uh, on top of the pops, went in at number 37 with Nothing Can Divide Us. Oh. So that's all starting. Yeah. Starting. Number one at the minute is Phil Collins' Groovy Kind of Love, which, that's, you know, we can yeah. live without. Yeah. But Yaz was just number one for five weeks, which is probably the best record of 1988. Oh, there's a comment. When they get to Too Many Broken Hearts, no, that's when we're talking Donovan. That's a stonewall tune. Yes, well, that's 1989. That's a tune. I love that song. Um, you can find me on, on non-Jason Donovan related notes at, uh, what is mine? At Ash Rose UK, that'll be the one, um, on both Instagram and Twitter. And follow the show at AK90s on Twitter, which we had lots of fun yesterday talking about the anniversary of Championship Manager, 97-98. Um, also on Instagram at AK90s pod. But yeah, download, share, subscribe, all the usual stuff as well on whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you very much for joining us. I think, I don't want to promise this because we've been um, trying to get schedules together, but we may be talking Diego Maradona finally next week. Um, Matthew will be back and we should have uh, somebody involved in that brilliant documentary on the line as well. So stay tuned for that. And we've also got a new theme. Yeah, we've been discussing. We're trying to get uh, some more regular shows out for you on a regular basis, and we've got some ideas coming your way very soon, so stay tuned for that. Thank you very much. This has been Alive and Kick In. Until next time, keep it 90s. Alive.